0: Welcome to Historias, the Spanish History Podcast. I'm Foster Chamberlain. Today I'm joined here in Chicago at the 2019 Conference of the American Historical Association by Joshua Goode, Associate Professor of Cultural Studies and History at Claremont Graduate University, for another installment of our series on Nazis in Spain. We're going to be discussing the life and historical memory of Otto Skorzeny in Spain, the most notorious Nazi to have hit out in Spain after World War II. So Joshua, welcome to the program. Thanks Foster. So I thought we might start by just um, talking a little bit about the life of Otto Skorzeny himself. So he's probably the most famous commando from World War II. So how did he get
1: such a reputation? So Skorzeny, you know, has Two kinds of lives. One is the the actual life that he lived, and then the one he described, <laughs> um, sort of energetically afterwards. His fame did develop during World War II. He was, you know, considered Hitler's first commando or the first commando, leading the first commando unit of the of the SS. He enlisted in the German army and went straight into the SS as part of Hitler's personal guard. You know, and he was involved in a couple of different actions in the early parts of the war, but the event that really has led to his fame, the reason why some people have heard of him and you know, people who are into World War II mm-hmm. trivia have heard of the guy, he is the one who in 1943, when uh, Mussolini had been uh, deposed and imprisoned, Mussolini was imprisoned in this mountaintop hotel on the Grand Sasso mountain, east of Rome, up in the mountains. Squortzani led this sort of daring, do liberation of Mussolini from this hotel. Replete—I mean, it's the stuff out of movies. Replete right. with, you know, a glider mission onto to land landing on the top of the mountain. Uh, reconnaissance photos were wrong. They thought they had nice, flat, grassy fields to land the gliders on. Skortseni was in the air in the glider and they look down and it's actually a rocky field and they have to make a lot of split-second decisions and Skortseni decides, again, laden with daring do, they'll continue with the... Liberation, they'll land the gliders on these on this rocky terrain. They land the gliders, they get Mussolini out. Scortseni and Mussolini have some famous exchanges. Mussolini and Scortseni pile into one glider that's built for two people and Scortseni makes it three, the pilot, Mussolini and Scortseni. But is sort of showing his interest in his own self-promotion, Realizes he wants to be with Mussolini right. when, the, when the glider lands. And of course, you know, and you know, who knows how accurate all of this sort of retelling is because a lot of it comes from Skorzeny's own retelling. Mm-hmm. But the glider takes off. Mussolini gets liberated. And that action really a- creates the Skorzeny fame. Uh, he meets Hitler. He gets a, uh, one of the highest medals from from Hitler right afterwards. And then he goes on to Uh, engage in a series of other famous actions or infamous actions uh, the kidnapping of Admiral Orthy later on and then uh, another act at the end of the war during the Battle of the Bulge that actually gets him uh, in trouble after the war with the Allied forces and the American forces in prison but it's really the liberation of Mussolini that that creates his his fame or infamy depending on your perspective (laughs) Right so He
0: becomes such a prominent figure in kind of late Nazi Germany, but did he see himself as a political figure, Nazi ideologue, or did did he present himself as kind of simply the soldier,
1: you know, doing what he's supposed to do? You know, it's a good question. It's interesting. He initially tried to enlist in the Luftwaffe, but at six foot four inches, he was too tall. Hmm. Uh, or at least the Luftwaffe said he was too tall. And you know, and again, his self promotion. He had, I mean, the other component of Scortesani. For those who are now googling Otto Scortesani <laughs> as we're talking, you know, you'll see that he's got a nice scar that runs ear to mouth that he that comes from uh, a fencing accident when he was a kid. I mean, a fencing accident. He was sort of overdoing it and cut himself. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I bring that up because the the question about his ideology or his politics, he wanted to become he wanted to go into the Luftwaffe. That was the most exciting potential I mean, I'm making I'm assuming this is, you know, sort of reading on to his psychology, but he wanted to join the Luftwaffe because he that was going to be the site of where you could be a real hero and it's exciting and, you know, the nineteen thirties, airplanes, fighting. That was that was where the the, the, the fame could potentially come. Right. And he couldn't get into it and then he joins the SS, you know, the you know, the elite force of the, of the Nazi Party and becomes Hitler's, one of Hitler's bodyguards. So I can say, I mean, during the war and what gets the attention of the SS and the, and the military leaders after he joins the SS is his military acumen. You know, he's a creative, interesting military thinker. And normally, we don't always associate that with strong political ideology, or he's a military person first. But I think his membership in the SS, I think his devotion to Hitler, his devotion to the mission, Mm -hmm. as it were, I think you have to put him, you know, you have to turn the needle more towards political ideologue. And again, from my perspective, reading what he writes after the war, especially in the Spanish press, he becomes a, a pretty ardent defender of Hitler, the person and the politician and we could talk about this later but mm-hmm. the way he sh- writes about Hitler and the way he describes Nazism it's as a true believer but he never talks about the things that we normally associate with the Nazis and he doesn't talk about the anti-Semitism, he talks not surprisingly in the 1960s about its anti-Bolshevism right. um, he occasionally talks about Hitler as this third path between democracy and communism that really is still needed in post-war Europe. Mm-hmm. So that's a very long way of not answering the question because it's a tough question to answer was he a political ideologue or was he more of a a, a military man? I think the needle points towards political ideologue just I think he had, he was committed to whatever the mission he was he was pursuing. Yeah. And the mission he was pursuing was the Nazi regimes, right?
0: And it seems like he was certainly a self-promoter and someone who was able to reinvent himself in these different contexts. But I understand that after World War II, his involvement with the regime kind of caught up to him, and and he was actually um, imprisoned by the by the Allies yeah. for for war crimes.
1: Yeah. So, so what what specifically were they uh, charging him with? Well, yeah. So he's captured at the end of the war, and he is both a witness at the Nuremberg war crimes trials and then is uh, at the Dachau trials. He's put on trial for uh, the Allies are unhappy and the U.S. The military was unhappy uh, and charged him with a potential war crime at, during the Battle of the Bulge. The daring mission that Skorzeny led uh, involved using stolen U.S. war material, tanks in particular, and U.S. military uniforms and dressing up his own soldiers in those uniforms and using the U.S. tanks to fool the American forces. And that's a violation of the rules of war. Mm -hmm. And so that was a war crime. Uh, Ultimately, the Allies did not convict him of that war crime. In 1947, He's acquitted. And then in 1948, he's still being imprisoned. They're potentially going to bring some more charges against him. He'd never really been associated with with the extermination, with with the Holocaust itself, though uh, his units that he fought in were in the East in uh, the early 1940s. So it's possible and probable that he was involved and certainly was aware of what was going on. But in, in, in a transfer between prisons in 1948, he escapes. And you know, there's not fantastic proof for this, but there's a lot of speculation. There's rumors that he was, ironically enough, and this is the part, irony is usually what I disbelieve in, <laughs> in, in, the, in the story, uh, or causes the disbelief, that he was liberated by German soldiers who were dressed as American GIs running the camp and that he was secreted out of the, I think it was Darmstadt camp. Uh, And so between 1948 and 1950, we know, uh, and the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, the precursor for the CIA, was tracking him. He had gone to Argentina, he was moving about in the sort of rat lines of Nazis moving, uh, fleeing uh, Europe. We know that he's in Paris in 1950. He's going back and forth to Argentina, to Spain, France. In 1950, uh, during that time, he's writing his book, his memoir, because, <laughs> wow. again, shameless self-promoter. Right. He's writing his book, which, you know, he loves to use what he had heard from the U.S. guards that he was referred to in OSS documents as the Europe's most dangerous man during the war. And, of course you know, if you're going to get called Europe's just most dangerous man, of course you're going to carry that moniker with you. I mean, they loved it. So (laughs) um, he used it quite a bit in his autobiography. The book, his autobiography, his memoir comes out in 1950 in Paris. There are some street protests and manifestations uh, around the release of uh, of his book. And we know then that he appears in OSS is Falling. We know he then pops up in Madrid where he's taken residence with his wife, who's uh, the niece of the German, the Nazi uh, finance minister, Jamal Schacht. That's kind of what happens to him in the immediate post-war period. He's in these prisoner of war camps, he disappears, falls below the surface, and then comes back up through the surface. In Madrid in 1950.
0: In Madrid. Yeah. Okay, great. So we're going to take a short pause, and then we'll look more at his time in Spain and his relationship to the Franco dictatorship there at that time. So now that we know some of the basics about Scorzani's life, I thought we could turn to his relationship with the uh, Franco regime. So why was this regime willing to shelter this prominent Nazi uh, commando and
1: someone who was arguably a war criminal as well? I mean, I think we know from, from other historians who are now interested in the topic of former Nazis or Nazi refugees in Spain, these people were... Potentially beneficial for an isolated state like the Franco regime. Mm -hmm. Um, These were potential connections with West German business world, financial world, uh, which is getting back on its feet in the 1950s. And so in some senses, and it really depended on the person, the willingness to harbor these people. I was going to say fellows, they were women as well. But the the harbor these people, most of the Nazis were, were... in Spain were, were men. But the willingness of the regime to harbor these fellows was really linked to the potential that they might have for f- helping uh, develop Spanish business and, or the Spanish, the Spanish industrial and financial world. Mm-hmm. scorzeni owns a small firm in Madrid, uh, probably financed through uh, his wife's her background and her wealth. But in addition, again, sort of Scorsenni spreading his fame. And this is how I kind of connected with him when I was beginning the research. Skorzeny was a great uh, rumor monger and self-aggrandizer. And so Scorsenni made it clear to anybody who was willing to talk to him that he managed the Odessa rat line that got that was getting Nazis out of Germany and secreting them to Argentina and you know the Eichmanns and the Mangalos, Scorzini made it clear that he was running Odessa. Mm-hmm. He also, and especially throughout the nineteen fifties, was telling anyone who would listen that via his wife he was in sole possession of Nazi gold that hadn't been confiscated <laughs> uh, by the Allies, and so that he was sitting. You know, and it depends on the telling. He was sitting on. Five hundred trillion bazillion dollars worth of gold, or eighteen gazillion dollars of gold. In other words, he just he was you know sort of good at creating an appearance that he was a valuable person. I think that was part of the reason why the regime was willing to harbor him. Where I became interested in him was not so much the reasons why the regime was willing to harbor him, but then how he was used and how he sort of was able in this kind of protean way or chameleon way to fit with whatever the regime's needs were at a particular moment. So mm-hmm. he would emphasize his business acumen or he'd emphasize his connections to uh, former Nazis If you know, in the sort of creation of a potential Fourth Reich uh, that the Odessa system was going to was involved in recreating was to rebuild the, to keep the network alive of Nazi leaders so that they could ultimately remake the Nazi state in the fourth Reich. And that's another way that Scorsese was promoting himself as the leader of that system. So wow. I, I think he, you know, he has a kind of chameleon appeal mm-hmm. at the, uh, in those years that he wanted to be, he was either a good businessman or he had connections with an international network of, mm-hmm spies and Nazi leaders and then later in the 1950s I think his appeals also his connections with Egyptian business
0: yeah. as well so but what's interesting to me is the way in which the, the Franco regime is is usually presented is that yes uh, they had this relationship with the Nazis in Germany but that as the war wound to a close they they downplayed that and so Harboring this this prominent Nazi is this something that they also had to downplay in in order to get these business connections, or was it actually something that
1: they were okay with with promoting? <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, and that that's really my entree into the topic. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what interested in me about Scorzini and about his uh, time in Spain, you know, my interest was first sparked by talking to a friend. Who knew people in what you know was really the what was called the German colony in Madrid? You know, starting in the 1950s and 1960s, but the sort of the German area where a lot of these you know thousands of German refugees, German refugees, really sort of former Nazis were living in Madrid. And this friend of mine had connections, familial connections, with them, and. Her descriptions of that world and of these people sort of interested me because, again, I was a, I thought, well, wow, this sort of extensive number of former Nazis in Madrid, which is interesting, you know, that they had a, a restaurant that they went to, Orchards, and, in Madrid, and they kind which of... Which is looked, still open, by Still the way open, yeah, it and, and it's still run by the same family, and... Um, if they had archives, I'd go to them. I actually you know, dreamed. I think we've talked about this, where I've dreamed that they're sitting, they have a bunch of boxes in the basement that have papers and photographs, because Himmler famously went to Orchards during the war in Madrid. But that's a, a separate story. Mm-hmm. But so my my interest was, you know, the, this this friend of mine describing these people, and they're sort of very public lives, that they were often on Spanish television talking about... Germany and West Germany, or talking about um, Spanish business in the West, and or that they were, and, and Scorsese in particular, were treated as these kinds of B-level celebrities, appearing on Spanish television game shows, for example, to kind of burnish the image of the regime as a kind of modern, but slightly different right. regime. And so that's what piqued my interest, and that's what sort of got me on the... Scorzeny train because when I started looking, diving into newspaper accounts and and the television and film archives, I started finding Scorzeny all over the place. Again, shameless self promoter. He never turned down an interview. Didn't seem. He liked to be on television. He liked to refer to himself as uh, Europe's most dangerous man still. But he always, and he also maintained, I think it was true, but also very well, a very sort of open secret that he lived a secondary secret life as well you know he created this air of being connected again through that odessa network that he created an air around himself of having a network of subterranean connections around the world so I discovered that Scorrzeni is appearing in the Spanish press all the time mm-hmm. and he's not a hidden figure. He's actually a figure that appears, you know in a, in a fairly controlled, censored press. He's appearing and presenting himself in a, in a multitude of ways and being written about by regime figures uh, in the press in a multitude of ways. And so he you know rather than this kind of secret hidden character living in the Madrid colony and they're keeping to themselves, you know, wearing dark sunglasses and fedoras and keeping to themselves, Gord said he was living a fairly public life and also gratuitously appearing in the Spanish press when he'd be coming back from some business trip. They would have a photograph of him in the newspaper getting off the, uh, you know, off the, pla- off the airplane, walking down the steps, cutting a dashing figure um, and, you know, the caption saying... Liberator of Mussolini, Otto Skortzen, returns from a business trip to Egypt.
0: Right, and right. Says, that's
1: front page news. So, <laughs> so w-
0: why do you think that the Franco regime would would actually uh, kind of broadcast the fact that they had someone like this inside Spain at a, at a time where they were generally trying to play down the connections between the regime
1: and, uh, and fascism? Well, I think, you know, so there are two answers to that. One of them is you know a sort of regular straightforward answer that that's connected to the the other answer. The regular straightforward answer is clearly they they there was something about Scorsenni's figure that was appealing and attractive mm-hmm. that they didn't mind promoting. And I think you know so what is it? I think that depended on the particular moment. The reason why you might advertise the presence or not or not hide the presence of this figure is you know I think on one level he does represent a a kind of version of this unique Spanish modernity of the 1950s and 1960s. He presents himself, not surprisingly, at times as an ardent and early Anti Bolshevik, and I sort of jokingly refer to him as a premature anti communist. Um, you know, it was a sort of twist on the, the way the Abraham Lincoln Brigaders were treated when they returned to the United States, as pre- labeled as a premature anti fascist. Right. he was, you know, that he, he presents himself as a kind of anti communist stalwart warrior, but, and as a kind of carrier of Western capitalist acumen. And so Scorzani's figure I mean, at least the way I read it, and the images that are presented of him, and, and some of the components of what he's writing, and I think this is true for other Nazi refugees in Spain, that they were a connection to modern finance. And therefore they kind of represent uh, a way for the regime to present itself as a slightly different, but a slightly different version of. Modern capitalist development. So I think on one level, uh, that's why he's promoted. And I think, you know, and this is sort of t- tethered to another issue within the Franco regime, he also, somebody like Skorzeny, uh can be used to appeal to the disparate coalition of Francoist forces that are supporting the regime. So of course you have a, an array of former Falange leaders, Serrano Sunier, who's always who's photographed quite often with uh, Skorzeny. They appear together every year on the anniversary of Mussolini's death. They appear in the press, photographed together, attending a memorial service for Mussolini. You know, So I think that Skorzeny also then gets to play the role of a good German Nazi, mm. or a good German former fellow traveler. And again, which sort of positions the Franco regime as another kind of third path, the way fascism liked to present itself as a third path between democracy and communism. Spain gets to use, the Franco regime gets to use a figure like Scorzeni as a former Nazi, uh, former fascist third path who, person who still lives in Spain. And then so again, a way of sort of shoring up the, the that part of that loose coalition of Franco supporters of the former Falange. And again, and, and I think you can sort of plug that, you can fill in the pieces of that jigsaw puzzle depending on whatever part of the coalition you're thinking of for the mm-hmm. Franco regime. So that's part of my, uh, that's part of the reason why I think that a figure like Scorzeny doesn't disappear, that he's actually allowed to kind of Bob at the surface of the regime's self-presentation.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I think it's interesting how he's kind of an example of how the regime doesn't just com- completely hide its kind of fascist components but, but continues to actually have that be a prominent part of its identity but just kind of reframed a bit from how it was during, during World War II and it's kind yeah. of a more open alliance with the
1: and it, and it depends on the press organ as well. I mean, uh-huh. the, the, you know, the, the Falange press plays up Skorzeny in different ways and ABC, the more sort of regime organ plays up Squirt in different ways but right. but not always so different either I mean mm-hmm. say is um Often showing the photographs of Sorano Sunier in this 1960s, sitting alongside Scordenti, both competing over how dour their expressions would <laughs> be as they sit looking at, you know, uh, at a memorial service to Mussolini's. So.
0: Right, right. Wow, that's amazing. The last topic that I wanted to hit on in our discussion today is, um, you also mentioned that now, of course, Spain has transition to a, a democratic regime for several um, decades but recently there's actually been another renewed interest in the in the presence of uh, Scorzani in Spain so what forms has that taken and and why do you think people are again interested in this story
1: that's a good question and and, and you know I, I can only answer talking about the subject that most interests me which is myself I mean the, the, the way that I came to Escorsany begins kind of in the 1990s when I was doing my own when I was living in Spain and doing my own research and I was seeing these references to these odd references to the Holocaust and to the to the Shoah in the Spanish press that that indicated a very clear absence of understanding of the enormity of the crime. It was a very sort of Spanish projection of onto the Holocaust of what. Contemporary Spanish issues were at being fought over at the partic- at a particular moment. Mm-hmm. And an ETA assassination, and a sensational ETA assassination that involved a shooting and into a, uh, the victim into a pit and leaving them in a in a pit, uh, elicited references to the Holocaust. That now you know ETA are the Nazis and we Spaniards are the Jews. And I thought these are sort of odd associations. Yeah. And I wanted to work on it, and then other components of life and research intervened. And uh, when I returned to the topic in uh, in relation to what you just brought up, the kind of return of memory and mm-hmm. these sort of energetic memory debates that start unfolding in the two in the two thousands, the aughts, and the two thousand teens, mostly related to the Spanish Civil War, I discovered that there were a number of other scholars like me who are interested in the particular valence that the Holocaust had in these memory fights. And so, and I found that, you know, people had actually worked on it and had made some pretty convincing arguments. And I didn't, you know, particularly feel like I needed to dive into that pool. But, but then I just, you know, but then I became interested in in this kind of odd harboring of Nazis, because again, like, as you brought up earlier, I had always assumed and had been trained to, 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 to think of the regime, the Franco regime, as muting its wartime alliances. And as I started, you know, and I was obviously interested in the harboring of Nazis as a sort of general interest, but also connected to this turmoil and churn of memory fights about, you know, the sort of confrontations with the past and coming to terms with past crimes that had never really been adjudicated, Mm -hmm. associated with the Spanish Civil War, the digging up of bones and the sort of having a full accounting of uh, the crimes of the Franco regime. So all of this churn of these different images, there's sort of a real return to uh, debates about the events that transpired, not just in... The Spanish Civil War, but also during World War II, I started. I became interested in, sort of, the, reinterested in the way in which the Holocaust comes up in Spain, but via this actual confrontation with the harboring of Nazis, which wasn't either was was neither silenced nor uh, forgotten, but right? And 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 ignored by the regime. It would actually had been promoted, mm-hmm. and and so. My interest in these Nazi refugees or the way in which Nazi refugees appear uh, within the regime is really tethered to a very, well, I'm going to call it a small issue. That's not very good at (laughs) self-promotion. But it's connected to a specific uh, idea that, you know, sort of challenging how the regime actually presented itself. And then it explains to me that kind of odd education that comes from the, public presentation of these Nazi refugees during the regime helps explain why in the post-Franco period you have this kind of odd understanding of the Holocaust and the, and the sort of odd, what, what can you call it, Spanish overpersonalization of the events of the Holocaust that happened elsewhere. Because in some ways there, there had never been a very clear understanding of what the Holocaust meant. Right? You had Nazis being harbored in Spain. You had them occasionally being presented and celebrated in Spain and being treated as our Nazis. Mm -hmm. So how then can you confront the Holocaust in the way that the rest of Europe is confronting the Holocaust in its odd, multitudinous fashion uh, in the post-war period, especially in the 1990s and the 2000s, you can understand some of the sort of oddity of the Spanish incomplete confrontation with the Holocaust via its own odd incomplete reckoning with its wartime alliances and the,
0: and the, and that's what's interesting to me because we often speak of the pact of silence in the in the early Democratic uh, period, people didn't want to rehash the tensions of the of the Spanish Civil War, but but that in the Franco regime there w- there was no pact of silence, no. you know that that in a certain context of glorifying the nationalists, you, you know that was talked about quite frequently, and it seems like similarly about the Holocaust, for instance, that aspect of uh, World War II that Spain played a part in as well in terms of their being We have another episode about yeah. Spaniards who, who were in the concentration camps. Yeah. So that was not talked about, but the, but this relationship with the Nazis and the presence of Nazis in Spain, that was, so it's, it was kind of a distorted image that then, yeah, helps to shape the way that the memory was confronted decades later.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think the The idea of a pact of silence or uh, or 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 a pact of forgetting of not talking about it, I'm not saying that you know Nazi refugees in Spain were on the street corners with bullhorns, you <laughs> know doing the Nazi salute and and goose stepping around, but you know, what would you call it maybe a pact of murmurings, right? right? yeah, you know, the sort of pact of you know, and this is the historian's job, I think, if we go back to daily life, if we go back to what was actually being talked about then we have to confront the kind of general models and assertions that we've been trained to assume existed or we've been trained to believe sort of defined an era. Mm -hmm. But if you go back into the historical record, you dive back into what was actually being said again, you're not finding bullhorn screams of, oh, the Fourth Reich starts here and you slam your finger down on a map on Madrid but you see that people are actually, there, there's a little more noise than, right, just, right. A, than just the signs. So packed pact of murmurings, I'll, I'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Well, I think that might be a,
0: a good place for us to uh, conclude. So thank you so much for coming on the program. I think this has been a fascinating um, discussion of the way that, that looking at one Nazi figure can actually help us understand the, the history of Spain in the modern period.
1: Well, thanks, Foster. It was a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.